Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie coming to you from the studio, from the Longboy Media Studios, newly renovated, sorry Carrie, newly painted, uh, including the ceiling, which I, I gotta say was no small task. Um, if you ever want to work with ceiling tiles, don't. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre. I had to, uh, I was getting the eyes from Carrie, like, well, you didn't say the rest of the thing. Um, yeah, the new studio, Carrie. New old studio, yeah. New old studio. <laughs> it looks uh, it looks great. We'll get some pictures up once we manage to get some stuff hung on these walls. Yes. So keep an eye out for that, uh, all you razor-eyed, ain't it scary social media followers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week, Carrie, we have a really scary one. Do we? Yeah. A tale of creatures from another world. Creatures startlingly real and uh, suddenly made flesh in front of us. Uh, creatures we thought never could have existed. Aliens? Carrie, it's even scarier. Cultures all over Europe tell ancestral stories of creatures who live in a hidden world connected to our own. Sometimes mm. beautiful, sometimes terrifying, but always alien and mysterious. These creatures were... Yeah, Called fairies, Carrie, by the medieval people of the British Isles. Oh, Sean, I know you're Irish and all, but are you really scared of fairies? Oh, Carrie, you were so excited when fairies got involved in the plot of True Blood. I, I thought you would love... <laughs> God. Oh, I try to block that out. It's, it's tough. Uh, it's tough. Uh, yeah, no. So the, this story's about fairies. We are, okay. We are going to talk about the Cottingley fairies. Oh, okay. Uh, do you know the Do you know the Cottingley fairies? I think I have a vague idea. Have you seen these photos? I've definitely seen the pictures. I've seen the photographs. The subject of our story today, uh, listener, is the Cottingley fairies, which you can either uh, go ahead and Google image image search right now, or uh, you know, if you're kind of spoiler minded, you can wait until I uh, start describing these photos and and take a look. Then, kind of, you know. Uh, interactive second screen experience for you. Mm -hmm. In 1917, Carrie, in an unassuming British suburb, two little girls, schoolgirls, recorded proof of that hidden world I talked about and brought its inhabitants out of the stories and into flesh and blood reality with five photographs, photographic proof of their tiny new playmates. Fairies. Yeah, fairies. Yeah, I, yes, I said that. Uh, the, this was such convincing proof of this ancient parallel culture to our own that no less a figure than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, one of the foremost literary and scientific minds of the day, and, you know, you know him, Carrie, as the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, mm -hmm. became the young photographer's greatest champion. Conan Doyle was all about the Cottingley Fairies. He even wrote a book uh, after he wrote several magazine articles. We'll get into all of it, don't worry. So, Carrie, are you ready to have your precious little world rocked irrevocably? If you come out of this saying that you believe in fairies, then it would all have been worth it, Sean. I do, I do, I do believe in fairies. And we all do today, Carrie, um, because this is their story. These are their stories. These are their stories. Ting, ting. 
so let's start with our subjects here. Uh, Francis Griffiths and Elsie Wright. Uh, Francis was born September 7th, 1907 in Yorkshire, but she would spend nearly the first 10 years of her life in South Africa. Uh, her mom's name was Annie. I don't have her dad's name, but he was a soldier, and he was stationed in South Africa for uh, for a good long while. But she returned to England in 1917 when her father was sent to serve in France in World War One. Hmm. Did he come back? I actually don't know, but he doesn't show up again in this story, and, and most men who went off to the front in France in 1917 seem not to have, so... Hmm. Francis and Annie, uh, while her dad was staying, in, well, was serving in France, uh, Francis... He was staying at a chateau. He was staying in France. Uh, Francis and Annie went to stay with Francis' Aunt Polly and Uncle Arthur in Cottingley, West Yorkshire, that tiny suburb we mentioned before. So she was nine going on ten at this point. And uh, the Wrights, Polly and Arthur Wright, had a 16-year-old daughter named Elsie. And the younger girl took to uh, following Elsie around right away. So they kind of became playmates. And um, it doesn't seem to have been an annoyance to Elsie. Elsie seems to have uh, liked having this little shadow following her around. I'm honestly surprised Elsie's that old in this story. I thought they were like two little, little girls. No, there's one little girl. And uh, and you can see them both in, in the photographs. The, the best one of... Uh, Elsie, she's, she's, we'll get to it, but she's sitting with kind of a garden gnome, <laughs> a winged garden gnome, uh, mm. who's doing a little dance for her. Um, but th- that's her. That's the 16 year old. Um, so apparently Francis and Elsie's moms were constantly annoyed with them over their favorite pastime of playing with a, playing in a ravine out uh, on the property. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the girls would always come back with wet feet and wet clothes from the creek, and, oh, you're ruining your dress. I just got you that dress. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that might have been a little bit of Caroline uh, status. Oh, I was big on being dirty and scraped knees, and I was always running with the boys, too. I was running those boys around. I was bossy. <laughs> yeah, they well, only... you know what? I was a leader, Sean. Yeah, they only say girls are bossy. That's true. They never say a boy's bossy. Well, uh, never mind. What? Oh, well, one day in mid-1917, Francis and Elsie got in trouble again for playing in the ravine. And they protested to Polly that they had only gone down there to see the fairies. Oh, twist. Well, there's no uh, such thing as fairies, uh, they were told. And they said, yes, uh uh-huh. Yes, uh uh-huh, there are. And to prove it, they borrowed Dad's camera. You see, uh, Elsie's dad was, photography was still kind of in its infancy. But you might not have had to sit there still for like 10 minutes to take a picture anymore. No, you could snap a picture somewhat instantly. Um, But it wasn't like an idle pursuit where everyone had a camera. uh, And you only had a nice camera, like the midge quarter plate that Arthur Wright had, if you were a really serious hobbyist. Uh, He also had a home dark room and the whole setup. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, inexplicably, uh, Arthur let the girls borrow this very expensive piece of equipment. Yeah, sure, go play by the ravine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say ravine, it's not a super deep like valley. It's just like a little uh, uh, kind of furrow in the ground that has a stream at the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And the girls returned, quote, 
triumphant, according to Elsie's father, 30 minutes later. Okay, 30 minutes. Now, Elsie didn't know how to work the uh, dark room, and obviously neither did Francis. So Arthur got right to work in his, uh, you know, little closet developing the photo plate. That's very cute. Like, they go to take some pictures, and he goes right to it. He doesn't just, you know, oh, later, I'll take care of it later. He's, like, encouraging their little hobby. Uh, to, to a point, as we'll see. Well, um, at this point. Years later, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle would um, reconstruct this scene in writing. Obviously, he wasn't there, um, but Conan Doyle wrote, The story ran that the girls were so excited in the evening that one pressed her way into the small dark room in which the father was about to develop, and that as she saw the forms of the fairies showing through the solution, she cried out to the other girl, who was palpitating outside the door, Oh, Alice! Alice! The fairies are on the plate! They are on the plate! It was indeed a triumph for the children, who had been smiled at as so many children are smiled at by an incredulous world for stating what their own senses have actually recorded. Uh, He says Alice there because in the magazine articles that Conan Doyle wrote about this story, the girls' names were changed for um, privacy purposes. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, the developed photo... His obsession with this does not, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, The developed photo, and this is the point at which I would encourage our listener to uh, Google the Cottingley Fairies, because this is the first image that you'll see. Okay. And the developed photo showed nine-year-old Elsie perched behind a bush. She's sort of resting her her head on her hands. Uh, And atop the little bush, there's four female figures with wings, wearing wispy dresses with uh, very elaborate hairstyles. The fairies appear to be about four inches tall, maybe, Carrie, would you say? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, I mean, including the wings, maybe uh, six. And uh, one of them looks like she's playing what appears to be a clarinet. <laughs> you know, fairies love the clarinet. Um, you know, it'll just a little, a little jazz solo there. Mm-hmm. Now, Arthur Wright himself, the dad dismissed the figures as cardboard cutouts and um he said he kn- he said later that he knew Elsie liked to play in the dark room sometimes so he was like oh she's you know i, I like that her imagination's running wild but th- this is obviously just silliness mhm i mean to be fair they do not look 3d to my eyes uh that is Carrie, that is one of the very famous cottingley fairy pictures and no one would disprove this photograph for um, geez, I guess almost 70 years. Okay. <laughs> I mean, okay. Sure. In 1918, the following year, Francis enclosed a copy of that first photograph, the one with you just saw with her and the fairies, in a letter to a friend in Cape Town. Blew her mind, I'm sure. Yeah, and she teased on the back of the photo... It's funny. I never used to see them in Africa. It must be too hot down there. You know what? Fair enough. It's probably too hot for me. So um, so that's the first photograph, and you're not impressed, huh? No. I mean, I can see other ones in this series. Uh, and they do look a little better, but that one in particular, the figures, I mean, the lighting on them looks different. Well, uh, it's yes, I'm so glad you raised that point. We'll talk about that more later. And yeah, they don't look like they're fully rounded 3D. 
images. Yeah, uh, one speculation that would arise is that these uh, fairies could be uh, thought forms, literally capturings of the little girl's imagination on film. I will say one of the better ones is that one that you mentioned earlier of um, Elsie, the older girl. Yep. With the little like gnome guy, little puppet looking guy. Uh, Let's talk about that. So this is two months after that first picture was taken. And Francis and Elsie somehow convinced Arthur to let them borrow the camera again. Mm -hmm. And once again, with a single photographic plate, only got one chance. Mm -hmm. They nailed it, I guess. And the resulting photo, you can see it there, shows uh, Elsie this time. And she's sitting in the grass with a, um, it looks like a, a gnome, I guess. Like you're like a vision of a lawn gnome, wouldn't you say? Um, He's got a little pointy hat. Yeah, but he's he's kind of a long skinny. Gnomes are like a short fat. And uh, I don't think he has a beard. Yeah, he's caught in mid... He, he looks like a little like puppet master puppet. <laughs> he also has wings. Yeah. Um, he's caught in mid-step here. He is ghoulishly tiptoeing. Yeah, I, there's something really unsettling about the like long spindly legs underneath his little beer gut. I don't like that. Um, once again, Arthur Wright, as he saw the otherworldly creature appear on film before him, he dismissed it as nothing but a prank and assumed the girls had been tampering with his camera somehow. And from that point on, they were not allowed to borrow Arthur's camera. Interesting. So they made like this really cool image. Yeah. And he's like, hmm. It's like, it's, a, it's, it's an impressive thing for two little girls to do. Yeah. Even if it's, it's cardboard, it's like, okay, but that's cool. I will say that the... But remember, this is an expensive piece of equipment, and they won't tell him how they did it. So he's like, he's well, I don't, want you annoyed. To, I don't want you to break the camera. He's, what are they going to do? I I think it's more a little more convincing, this one, because um, the ghoulish little puppet gnome, and <laughs> like she she's looking at it. Yes. Or she appears to be looking at it. Whereas in the first one, Francis is, Francis is kind of... At the photographer. She looks like Michael Sarah, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that meanly, but like it reminds me of like an image of Michael Sarah kind of looking into the, the distance. Sure, and there's a lot of those. Yeah. Um, but she's not... Yeah, she's not looking at this whole, whole cacophony of fairies in front of her. Um, no, because she's smiling for her sister who's taking the picture. Hmm. Now, unlike Arthur, who was sick of it at this point, uh, Polly was delighted by the photos. This was... uh, I mean, they're very cute. Elsie's mom. Um, And that's how we get to the Theosophical Society. Okay. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. (laughs) Because remember, it's 1918 at this point. Spiritualism is big. Yeah, like many in the UK and the US at this time, Polly was enamored with spiritualism and with psychical research. To be honest, Sean, I would have been living in Lilyvale, New York. Oh, yeah, I know. You would have been with me. You would have been this Polly uh, person bringing your children's art projects in and going, ghosts! No, no, I think I'm a little more logical than that. Polly attended a lecture from the Theosophical Society on fairy life in the summer of 1919. I would have gotten to that lecture, though. Are you kidding? Yeah, of course. And then you would have seen this this woman get up and go, my daughters have seen fairies. (laughs) And she brought out the pictures and she showed them to the speaker. Oh, my niece and my daughter took these pictures. Uh, He was apparently impressed because 
Copies of the photos were then displayed at the Theosophical Society's annual meeting a few months later. It's like the really good pictures taken on ghost tours. And they like show you these laminated pictures like this was taken on this tour. Yes. You'll never get one, but the, but it's been done. I actually have, Sean. I know, but you'll never get one. As, as, is it on display? I did mail it to the girl, but oh. it, it was a film photo in from when I was like 10. So <laughs> I don't know if she got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope people are still seeing it now. Um, so when copies of this photo were displayed at the Theosophical Society's annual meeting, leading member, uh, Edward Gardner himself, uh, the Theosophical Society was involved in a lot of different kind of areas of occult research and psychical research. Um, but Gardner was a theosophist through and through. We've talked about theosophy before. Um, listeners can go back to, let's see, Georgia Damsky. Uh, Did we, it figure into Hollow Earth? Yes, the Theosophists uh, love the Hollow Earth. Yeah. Because that's where the ancient masters live now. In, in tunnels under the earth. Uh, we haven't talked about Helena Blavatsky on this podcast. Gosh, that's a whole thing. But uh, yeah, so suffice it to say, you can check our Georgia Damsky episode for a little background on Theosophy that I'm not going to get into here. It was... It was a whole way of looking at the world, a whole new spiritual system that was coming coming around at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big part of theosophy is the idea that humanity is going through a cycle of uh, evolution. And every however many thousands of years, uh, that evolution takes another leap forward. It's exactly like X-Men, actually. Sure. It's like the opening voiceover to the film X-Men is what theosophy is about. Um, And so Edward Gardner would later say, the fact that two young girls had not only been able to see fairies, which others had done, but had actually... (laughs) Really? (laughs) I swear. But had actually for the first time ever been able to materialize them at a density sufficient for their images to be recorded on a photographic plate meant that it was possible that the next cycle of evolution was underway. So he's positing that they're they're just so little that they haven't usually shown up on camera because they're small. Because yeah. they're small. No, S-M-O-L. not M O L. No, but it's really that they exist in kind of a diffuse form, or maybe it's almost a precursor to the idea of uh, a parallel universe laid over ours. It's like the idea that these fairies are like there but not there. Sort of the theory that ghosts and shadow people aren't actually spirits of the dead but just sort of like weird little hazy reflections of our parallel universe exactly right carrie too true duh now we will return to this later but gardner brought the photo plates to photography expert harold snelling who uh, faithfully reported that quote The two negatives are entirely genuine, unfaked photographs with no trace whatsoever of studio work involving card or paper models. Well, how how can he tell? He just, there was no sign of like strings holding holding up little models or or anything like that. They're all right on the ground. They could just be standing there like a, you know, like a picture frame. How are they standing there? You put a little stick on the bottom and you stick that in the ground. So you think they're on like a little pin or something? Yeah. Okay, well, Snelling didn't see any signs of pins, but if you think you're the expert here, Pins are small. Um, Now, Gardner had Snelling create new clarified negatives that were more conducive to printing, he said, 
and started selling prints at the close of all of his lectures as he toured around the country. And I'm sure he got permission to do this, and he was giving a cut of the profits to the little girls. Oh, he had never met the family at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the family would start gaining fame because the photos would now circulate through spiritualist circles, which, again, were pretty thick on the ground at this time in uh, uh, high society England. I wonder if you can find any of those original prints on, like, eBay or something. I saw the... Uh, one of them went up for auction in... I didn't write it down, but I'm going to say 2017, 2019, maybe. Mm -hmm. And they expected the photos to go for like 2,000 pounds-ish. And I think one of them went for 15,000. Holy moly. And those are not the plates. Those are the original prints. The original prints made from the plates or the ones that this guy was selling? No, made from the plates. Oh, you're... I want to I want to see that one because that's probably like... There's more of those probably. Yeah, you would think. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder if you could. Uh, I drop a hondo down. on that. Sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, listener, uh, let us know if you if you got a line on any uh, <laughs> Cottingley Fairy pictures. Hey, you got any of those Cottingley Fairy pictures? Um, it would ultimately come to the attention of the editor of the spiritualist magazine Light, who would then bring the fairy photos to the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta see this, buddy. Uh, so, Carrie, who is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? He's a fancy boy, he is a writer, and he wrote Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he's a fancy boy. Uh, every bit when you picture kind of a, an English gruff fat guy from this time. Yeah, he's that guy. He's got a mustache. He's always in a, 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 a tweed suit. Mm-hmm. This way, I'll lead you. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. The guy from Titanic, of course. Yes, uh, we love. Yeah, that's the guy for the guy who goes. Uh, uh, a real man makes his own luck. No, that's, that's no. All life is a game of luck. That's what it is. Real man makes his own luck. Billy Zane, Titanic. That's right. Anyway, that kind of guy. <laughs> exactly. You, you know this kind of bit part from Titanic kind of guy. Yeah, keep up, people. Come on. <laughs> Conan Doyle was born in 1859 in Edinburgh. Nope. And his father's... Shout out Greyfriars Bobby. <laughs> yes, yes, we love the city of Edinburgh. Actually, that's very high on our uh, travel oh, destination list. definitely. Doyle's father's alcoholism and uh, family poverty made for a pretty tumultuous upbringing, but he did uh, very well at school. And uh, while he was attending medical school, he started writing fiction. Uh, as much as he was, he was definitely a smart guy in his way, um, but he wasn't a super successful doctor. The patients kind of never came. He had a couple of practices, um, but but it was never you know, it wasn't he 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 did, his heart maybe wasn't in it. Well, that's fair enough. And Doyle would make his living as an author after the publication of A Study in Scarlet in 1886. He was 27 years old. Wow, drop that banger immediately. First Sherlock Holmes book is your first... Like, that's Alan Rickman, first movie role is Die Hard, you know? Well, he had published pieces before, but he had never published any, printed anything that got him the kind of attention that would let him, you know, uh, stop pretending to be... He was studying to be an eye doctor in Germany at one point, and then he was like, wait, I don't speak German! <laughs> Should have thought of that beforehand. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> Art. So it must have been a real relief when the writing thing came through. Um, obviously Sherlock Holmes would make him a household name all over the world and would then dog his career, 
until Doyle eventually killed him off just so he could stop writing about him uh, and then had to revive him again because of the public outcry was so great. Yeah, people were obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. I mean, they're, you know, he's, if you were on Tumblr in 2011, it was just the same then. He's probably the most famous, one of the most famous characters in literature, certainly. And interestingly, very much kind of an originator of fanfic uh, becoming like popular fiction. Because oh, in the sense of people taking up and writing Sherlock Holmes stories after he had died? Yes, or after even Arthur Conan Doyle had died. But, you know... Oh, that's what I meant, after Doyle had died, yeah. Like, Dante's Inferno is pretty much a fanfic. It's a self-insert of, of Dante writing about the Bible and stuff. But, like, uh, you know, so that's like an early thing. But, yeah, Sherlock Holmes was... People were obsessed. When he died, they were like, this can't be the end. There must be more. I will write the story, you know? Um, kind of a fascinating cultural moment. Yep. Um, Doyle himself wrote 56 home stories and four novels starring Sherlock Holmes. Um, so it's no wonder he was sick of him by the end. Um, but people have written many, 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 many more than that since about Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Doyle also, as a young man, kind of broke with the staunch Catholicism he'd been raised in. And he considered himself an agnostic for a while before he became enchanted with spiritualism right around the same time he started writing full-time. A lot of... <laughs> Us writers will do that. Yeah. We're just, we're always dreaming and, you know, thinking about things. Well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, thing. And I don't know, let's take a look. He was a doctor. He, he, he made the, the famous scientific mind of Sherlock Holmes. But uh, I think we'll... There's, there's an interesting duality to Arthur Conan Doyle, and I just don't know how scientific his mind was, but we'll, uh, we'll see that as we uh, go forward here. I think when you're spending your livelihood all day just daydreaming and coming up with little stories, at the end of the day, everything's just kind of, oh, it's a little story. Um, you're going to be more prone to sort of having your mind open to other things. His son was killed in, I think, 1918 in the war. Jesus, Sean. And a lot, well, a lot of people will kind of erroneously claim that that's what sent him spiraling into spiritualism. Well, it sent a lot of people into it. That's why it was so pop. I mean, we'll definitely do an episode and even maybe a series on spiritualism sometime soon because I am so fascinated by it. But it was a way that a lot of people were dealing with the horror of losing so many people to World War One. is the hope uh, of an afterlife and that their spirits can visit or communicate with them because a lot of people didn't get to say goodbye to their loved ones. They just died on some foreign soil and that was it and there was no closure. Um, but that said, Conan Doyle was publicly talking about spiritualist stuff about a year before his kid had died. So it, it was he was already in. Fair enough. Um, so in mid-1920... He was under deadline for a piece about fairies that he had agreed to write for The Strand magazine. I wish I was under deadline for a piece about fairies. Right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Man. Um, so when Doyle heard about the photos, he's writing this piece. He doesn't really have many ideas. And he contacted first Gardner, the guy from the Theosophical Society, then uh, Arthur Wright. And he asked Wright if he could pay for use of the photos to illustrate his article. Uh, Wright was 
really impressed to be contacted by the famous author, Arthur Conan Doyle. And he did give his permission to use the photos, but he refused any payment because he said, uh, he said in his letter, if, if these images are genuine, then they shouldn't be soiled by money. So it's like, it's but he's big... been selling them and he has, again, has not. Oh no, Arthur, the dad. Sorry, I was thinking Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh yeah, no. Oh yes. The, the Arthur, the Arthur Wright, the, the father who had developed gotcha. the photos refused payment for appearing in the magazine. Okay. So Doyle set about getting second and third opinions from photography experts. He can't just go off half cocked. Never. You had this guy Snelling, who the who the spooky guy had found, mm-hmm. and he gave the opinion you might expect. But now let's get some some objective outside opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kodak agreed with Snelling's assessment that there was no sign of fakery that they could detect in the photo, but they said they wouldn't go so far as to say it was unequivocal proof of fairies no you can't and so they ultimately refused to grant their seal of authenticity which is what doyle had asked them for so that was like a thing that they had back in the day yeah it's like nope nothing has been tampered with here kodak seal of approval all right um one of the technicians uh, gardner would later say they were like biased against it and that's the only reason they had uh that he was like they they probably were yeah well they were asked to verify a picture picture of fairies one technician commented in his analysis well, after all, as fairies couldn't be true, the uh, photographs must have been faked somehow. <laughs> we know that fairies aren't real, right? So, um, so yeah, a little bias there, maybe. But yeah, you're definitely going in with an opinion. But you know, they got another opinion. The uh, film company Ilford was also asked to take a look at the photographs. Um, they were much less optimistic than Kodak. They uh, they reported that there was some evidence of faking. What was that? They just thought it looked like cardboard, I think. <laughs> yeah, the evidence is it looks like shite, doesn't it? Um, so taking these two opinions along with Snelling, uh, Doyle, and I think this is kind of, an, kind of a rose-colored glasses uh, uh, take on this. Doyle decided that was two out of three experts agreeing with him. And he, he said, meatloaf styles, two out of three ain't bad. That's right, exactly. Now, uh, he also asked a a personal friend of his, physicist Sir Oliver Lodge, what he thought of the photographs. Uh, Lodge said it was probably just a trick photograph of a dance troupe. And he noted the, quote, distinctly Parisienne hairstyles on the fairies. Oliver, you're not like vogue okay you're like a physicist or whatever but he's saying like if these are fairies from another world why do they do their hair in a currently popular hairstyle here i mean fair enough point but he knows a lot about hair dudes, i guess <laughs> i guess a distinctly parisian style it's like hmm, okay now doyle didn't have time to go and meet the little girls and their family himself because at the time he was organizing a lecture tour but he did send Gardner to interview them for him. And Gardner brought the family two brand new cameras with secretly marked photographic plates so that they could detect if anything had been done to tamper with them after the fact. That's not what they're doing. It's obvious that they're not tampering with it after. I don't know what you mean, Carrie. Okay. With interest now swirling around the photos, in at least theosophical circles, Francis went to stay with the Wrights for the summer of 1920. Now they had these two new cameras, so the girls could take more fairy pictures. But the weather was not good for fairy spotting, 
uh, all summer long until one day in August. I think it was August 14th. This uh, is like me having to do my math packet yes. for the summer. And, oh, it, no. and I would always, all, every time. I would do it like the day before. Oh, we still haven't done the fairies. <laughs> yes. We've been just taking pictures, selfies all summer. <laughs> one at a time. Um, one day in August, the girls convinced Polly to go and visit her sister's house for tea. Because they told, you know, uh, Elsie's mom that the fairies wouldn't come out if anybody was looking. Okay. And she said, yeah, sounds good to me. Fair <laughs> enough. So Polly I fucked- fancy a spot of tea, I do. Shows she fucked off to her sister's house. <laughs> Not suspicious at all. And the girls took several photos, and two of them included fairies. So going back to your uh, little packet of photos there, Carrie- the uh, third photo they took shows Frances in profile, the younger girl, with a tiny leaping fairy by her nose. Okay. It's the one her, her head takes up most of the frame. Yeah, that's the one. I wouldn't say her head takes up most of the frame. She takes up most of the center of the frame. Okay. <laughs> that's not nice. Um, and the other one they took that day, the, the fourth fairy photo, shows Elsie, the older girl, regarding a tiny winged woman standing on a leaf and offering her a tiny flower. This one I think is pretty good. I think the ones the uh, the younger girl, Frances, she she took a good picture because I feel like all of the ones of Frances are kind of blurry. And then all of the ones of Elsie are really nice and sharp and clear. But Elsie is also a more cooperative subject who is interacting with the with the fairies maybe a little more believably that's true i will say that there's a lot of people that have put like different you know sepia filters or sharpen them or whatever and when you do that they look real fake right but this is what they looked like um no i know originally and um super parisian so the hair is i can't get over how parisian that hair is (laughs) Uh, two days later they took one more picture Number five, which uh, shows three fairies standing in front of kind of a domed twist of flowers and grass. And the fairies in this one are slightly translucent, as if they're only partly in this world. Oh, yeah, they're they're kind of translucent. Yeah. so Especially in the middle. So that's an eerie effect. Uh, sure. <laughs> Unless it's like a stocking or something. A stocking? Yeah, you can see through a stocking. So you think they're made of stockings, the fairies? Well, maybe the wings. That's interesting. Because some might say it looks like a double exposure. Well, that could be. But if uh, the dad is still developing them and if he's still not part of any hoaxing that might or might not be going on, then it would have to have been before the image was developed. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, part of the part of the puzzle, isn't it? Well, no. If they've got a camera that could take two exposures in in one, would role they know now, how to do that? Well, it could have been done by accident. Interesting, but it seems to only prove that sort of parallel universe theory. So that's why I thought maybe they were doing it on purpose. Right. Well, we'll uh, discuss that photo specifically more later. But for the time being, when he got the photos, the new photos, Gardner was very excited when he saw these three pictures. Oh, yeah. This grown man was ecstatic when he saw these fairies. Honey, new fairy pictures dropped. 
He sent a very excited telegram to Doyle, who was on his speaking tour in London. You won't believe this shit. And Doyle replied, My heart was gladdened when out here in far Australia. Oh, I guess he wasn't in London. Uh, My heart was gladdened when out here in far Australia I had your note and the three wonderful pictures which are conformatory of our published results. When our fairies are admitted, other psychic phenomena will find a more ready acceptance. We have had continued messages at seances for some time that a visible sign was coming. It is a bummer because it's very much like the boy who cried wolf sort of thing. I do believe there are paranormal activities in this world. We've established that over 150 something episodes. Do I, I don't believe in this situation. <laughs> right. So like people like this make it more difficult for anyone to believe. And he's clearly got kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats view yes. of spiritualism. Like, oh, if we prove that's one. That's why hoaxers tend to do these things if they're believers initially. But it just damages the whole movement instead. Right, because it makes it look like everything is a hoax. Yes. And in my life so far, every every one of them is. <laughs> Okay, well, some of them are (laughs) open-ended. Later that same year, Conan Doyle would publish to the world these fairy photographs and his own um, defense of them, like impassioned defense of them, and uh, his laying out of what this would mean for the coming epoch. Okay. And uh, we we will dive into Conan Doyle's article and all of the aftermath, and and maybe get to the bottom of what's going on here, Carrie, when we return. Can't wait. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Welcome back. When last we left you, uh, we had taken you through the story of the taking of all five of the famous Cottingley Ferry photographs by Francis Griffiths and Elsie Wright in 1917 and in 1920. And later in 1920, those pictures were finally going to get their time in the sun. In the article, Fairies Photographed, an epic-making event described by Arthur Conan Doyle. (laughs) Um, Because of his celebrity status at the time, the name Arthur Conan Doyle took up like half a page. If I did it. Right. One of those. It was published December 1920 in The Strand magazine. Remember, this is what he had been on deadline for when he contacted the girls earlier that year. Mm-hmm. This would be the first high-resolution printing and publication of those famous fairy photos. And uh, as I said earlier, the girls were referred to as Alice and Iris Carpenter in the article for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. Reading right from the top here, Carrie. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's pretty lengthy, actually. Should the incidents here narrated and the photographs attached hold their own against the criticism which they will excite, it is no exaggeration to say that they will mark an epoch in human thought. 
I put them in all the evidence before the public for examination and judgment. If I am myself asked whether I consider the case to be absolutely and finally proved, I should answer that in order to remove the last faint shadow of doubt, I should wish to see the result repeated before a disinterested witness. <laughs> At the same time, I recognize the difficulty of such a request since rare results must be obtained when and how they can. But short of final and absolute proof, I consider, after carefully going into every possible source of error, that a strong prima facie case has been built up. Doyle then shares how he came to know the family, uh, before having Gardner write half the article for him with a detailed account of the story you've kind of already heard. Delegate, delegate, delegate. Uh, he then follows, I may add as a footnote to Mr. Gardner's report that the girl informed him in conversation that she had no power of any sort over the actions of the fairies and that the way to tice them, as she called it, was to sit passively with her mind quietly turned in that direction. Then, when faint stirrings or movements in the distance heralded their presence, to beckon towards them and show that they were welcome. It was Iris who pointed out the pipes of the gnome, which we had both taken as being the markings of the moth-like underwing. She added that if, that if there was not too much rustling in the wood, it was possible to hear the very faint and high sound of those pipes. To the objection of photographers that the fairy figures show quite different shadows to those of the human, our answer is that psychoplasm as the etheric protoplasm has been named. Of course, psychoplasm. Has a faint luminosity of its own, which would largely modify shadows. Mm-hmm. Classic, classic psychoplasm. So there you go, Carrie. You you asked, and Doyle answered. He really did. The fairies give off a light of their own, so obviously that's going to interfere with shadows. Too true. At length, he offers his own analysis of the photographs. One fact of interest is this presence of a double pipe, the very sort which the ancients associated with fawns and naiads in each picture. But if pipes, why not everything else? Does it not suggest a complete range of utensils and instruments for their own life? Their clothing is substantial enough. It seems to me that with fuller knowledge and with fresh means of vision, these people are destined to become just as solid and real as the Eskimos. There is an ornamental rim to the pipe of the elves, which shows that the graces of art are not unknown among them. And what joy is in the complete abandon of their graceful little figures as they let themselves go in the dance. They may have their shadows and trials as we have, but at least there is a great gladness manifest in this demonstration of their life. A second general observation is that the elves are a compound of the human and the butterfly, while the gnome has more of the moth. This may be merely the result of underexposure of the negative and dullness of the weather. Perhaps the little gnome is really of the same tribe, but represents an elderly male while the elves are romping young women. Most observers of fairy life have reported, however, that there are separate species varying much in size, appearance, and locality. The wood fairy, the water fairy, the fairy of the plains, etc. <laughs> Another point is that the two upheld hands of the elves seen under a high power do not appear to be human, nor does the left foot of the figure capering upon the right. The hands seem furred at the edges, and the fingers to be a solid mass. Almost as if a child had drawn them, you might say. Hmm. Uh, this may also be due to movement and position, but it is curious that both hands give the same impression. It is notable also that the one figure which is without wings is the one which is sinking into the herbage. Can these be thought forms? The fact that they are so like our conventional idea of fairies is in favor of the idea. 
but if they move rapidly, have musical instruments, and so forth, then it is impossible to talk of thought forms, a term which suggests something vague and intangible. In a sense, we are all thought forms, since we can only be perceived through the senses. But these little figures would seem to have an objective reality, as we have ourselves, even if their vibrations should prove to be such that it takes either psychic power or a sensitive palate to record them. Oh, sensitive plate. If they are conventional, that, uh, if they are conventional, it may be that fairies have really been seen in every generation, and so some correct description of them has been retained. Arthur Conan Doyle would have lost his shit over the borrowers. I love that he thinks your biggest... Indian in the cupboard would have just completely blown his mind. He seems to... Well, the movie, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to think that your biggest problem with swallowing all this is going to be like, well, wait, why do they look so much like fairies? <laughs> oh, Arthur, that's not my problem. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's... that's uh, I think that gives you a pretty good sense of the article. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? That's the guy who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. Ooh, um, well, he's either going to end up vindicated or with a whole lot of egg on his face. Because he's really going hard for the fairies. You know, I think in order to have egg on your face, you have to admit that you were wrong. Ah. Um, this, by the way, will be what ends his uh, friendship with Harry Houdini. We did mention that, I think, earlier on. Yeah, and well, we, we did talked our, about Houdini. We did our Death of Houdini episode, um, I think, in 1921 at the height yeah, of... Yeah, it was a long time ago we did that episode. <laughs> <laughs> it no. was like episode 21, so... No, I think in 1921 at the height of Doyle's kind of fairy madness, um, Houdini and he stopped talking. They had a fight and they stopped talking and uh, they hadn't made up by the time Houdini died in 1926. Imagine falling out with like a good friend over fairies i two grown men being like fairies are real no fairies are not real i mean the thing is you know like we talked about in that episode houdini considered himself like the ultimate champion of reason and uh uh, i mean really of 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 giving the giving the finger to liars Mm -hmm. was his was his thing and he hated spiritualism more than anything he basically almost stopped doing magic so he could just go around exposing being a jerk to psychics mm-hmm. <laughs> exposing seances and and things like that so the idea that conan doyle's doing his best to be a champion for the other side um yeah it must have really rankled him and and i think that part of what houdini was excited about when he first got to meet the famous author sir arthur conan doyle is he loved Sherlock Holmes. He must have a brilliant mind of logic and reason. A brilliant scientist, yeah, because how, how else could he have written those stories? I mean, there had to be something there to, to be able to come up with the twists and things in, in those stories. Well, yeah, sure, but I don't want Agatha Christie to operate on me either. I don't know, she seemed like a tough broad. Yeah, I'll, I'll put her in a, I'll bet on her in a cage fight. Oh. I just, <laughs> I just don't, want, don't want her cutting me open. Uh, now, the initial wide reaction to the Strand article, and it did make quite a splash when it came out, uh, written as it was by the most famous author of the day. The reaction has been described as, quote, a mix of embarrassment and puzzlement. Oh, no. Well, I mean, he's he's riding hard for these fairies. So hard. Um, the journal John O. London's Weekly had, I think, my favorite uh, quotation on this. Uh, knowing children and knowing that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has legs... I decide that the Miss Carpenters have pulled one of them. It's like if John Grisham came out like really about elves. 
Yes. <laughs> they, you, you know, in Iceland, they build the roads around the hills because they think the elves live there. They know it. Uh, oh, John. Over 56% of Icelanders believe in elves. John, it's enough. Come on. Um, the fairies did have their defenders, too. And uh, many of them were uh, particularly loud people. Uh, educational reformer Margaret Macmillan said, How wonderful to hear that to these dear children such a wonderful gift has been vouchsafed. Well, she seems nice. She really does, Carrie. Um, but the, I think most people were like, really? Ar- <laughs> who, Arthur Conan Doyle says this? <laughs> yeah. Um, Gardner would make one last visit to the right home, and he brought along occultist Jeffrey Hodgson with him. Uh, the girls didn't take any photos on this occasion, and they didn't report seeing any fairies. But Hodgson apparently saw them everywhere he looked and took many notes on his sightings. Um, and the girls would later admit, was still as little girls, that they thought Hodgson was a fake and that they were just trolling him all day. Okay. Now, for his part, Arthur Conan Doyle was not done with this, although the uh, Wright family seemed to be. Uh, Doyle would write another article about fairy sightings in the same magazine the following year, using the later pictures you saw as illustrations for this one. And uh, he would pay all of that material forward into a book called The Coming of the Fairies. He really was into these fairies. And so the, it sets itself out as a gathering of Doyle's beliefs and his research on fairy life and uh, stories he's heard about people who have seen them and stuff. But, I mean, it seems like he spends a third to a half of the book just defending himself on the issue of this fairy thing mm-hmm. and coming after the... the and, and here's another thing the critics say, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, it's one of those. And we've run into those with UFO people a lot. Yeah. Remember the later Georgia Damsky books are all like about how a secret conspiracy has been following him and stuff to silence him about the UFOs. Mm-hmm. A postscript, Carrie. Interest in the Cottingly fairies dwindled pretty quickly as the 1920s got on, despite the ongoing popularity of spiritualism. But it would kick back up again in the 60s. Because everything was groovy, baby. Everything was groovy, baby. A reporter with the Daily Express was able to track down Elsie, who was living in England again after spending many of her married years overseas. Mm-hmm. And in a flighty kind of a way, she, admit, she admitted to that reporter, Peter Chambers, that the fairies, quote, may have, been figment, may have been figments of my imagination. But it wasn't clear to Chambers or to his readers whether she meant that the photographs were fake or they were thought forms. Or that the little girls, yeah, had somehow managed to capture an image of their thoughts on film. It's a great way to talk around it. It sure is. And it does. You know, Doyle was talking about thought forms even in the article uh, back in, in 1920. Mm-hmm. So maybe that also helps make the ethereal looking fairies in that last picture make more sense. These are kind of shimmering in and out of our world as they're created by these little girls' imaginations. Mm-hmm. And this article was basically all a new generation of occult enthusiasts needed to uh, ignite the great debate about the fairies all over again. So speculation follows, and all of a sudden these two are getting more interviews than they've ever had about this. They they didn't do any when they were little girls, right? In 1971, after years of speculation about that earlier strange interview Mm. with Elsie, um, BBC's Nationwide would investigate the fairy phenomenon including another interview with Elsie. 
and she now seemed a little more sure of what she meant. Uh, I've told you, they're photographs of figments of our imaginations, and that's what I'm sticking to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that still could be things that they drew. <laughs> yeah, still dancing around the issue yes. a little bit. That's what I'm sticking to. Um, five years later, in 1976, the controversy was the controversy was still alive and well, and Elsie and Francis were both interviewed for a feature on local Yorkshire TV when they were pressed by journalist Austin Mitchell that, quote, a rational person doesn't see fairies. <laughs> both cousins agreed, but they insisted the photos hadn't been fake. Okay. Two years later, in 1978, magician James Randi... The uh, skeptic's hero who patterned, patterned himself after Houdini. You know, I'm a magician, but I, you know, I, I, I'm telling you the truth about how I'm lying to you. Now I go and uh, uh, show you how other people are actually lying. Penn and Teller do this, too. Mm-hmm. He, was, uh, he was in between Houdini and Penn and Teller in, in that kind of role. Uh, sexy sandwich. Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely. And you should get a look at James Randi. Sexy guy. <laughs> Randy's in his name, baby. He investigated the Cottingley Fairies in 78 with his Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, which is a, that name goes down smooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense. They later changed it to uh, Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which is CSI, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any issues with that in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm sure it caused no problems or confusion. <laughs> uh, so the CSI, or the future CSI, used a computer... Yay! Used a computer enhancement pro- Who are you? Who, 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 who? It's right behind you. They used a computer enhancement process, which must have been an amazing process in 1978, one year after Star Wars came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and Randy decided the photos were faked. He claimed you could see the little strings holding up the fairies um, after the computer analysis had been done. Mm-hmm. And the British Journal of Photography would decide the same thing in a report they published over 82 and 83. But I don't think, and weirdly to vouch, I don't think all of these pictures could involve fairies that are hanging off of strings. You are exactly right about that, Carrie. They couldn't. Good. And the cousins remained insistent that no fakery had taken place. Until both of them admitted in a magazine later that year that fakery had taken place. (gasps) What made them change their minds? That's a great question. A 1983 issue of The Unexplained magazine. This is so much later than these pictures were taken. Yes. Can you believe anyone cared? I can't believe they're still alive. Um, A 1983 issue of The Unexplained explained the uh, phenomenon in an interview with Francis and Elsie where the women finally admitted they had faked the photographs, although they both still maintained they had seen fairies before and after they took them. Mm, This is just a tribute. Yes, this is not uh, the greatest fairy in the world. Elsie copied pictures of dancing girls out of a popular children's book of the time. It's called Princess Mary's Gift Book. And I actually want you to uh, see the illustration from... Oh, the, I mean, the style is very similar. Yeah. And who had did, done the drawings? Elsie? Yes, Elsie. It would have been a really impressive drawing for a nine-year-old girl. Still very nice. Still well, good drawings. Well, they're copied. They might have even been traced. 
Okay. You know, you'd trace a picture as a kid and it would come out great. Sure. Um, so she had, obviously those are just dancing girls. They don't have wings. She drew the wings herself, which is quite impressive. The uh, fairies were supported in their little poses with hat pins, not hung on strings. So take that, James Randi. I knew it. And when each photo was taken, the- They're car- little standees. Yes, they are. They're I knew it. Like the giant Elvira, the life-size Elvira that you have. That's my girl. Yeah, and she's real too. She's all too real. Uh, when each photo had been taken, the little cardboard dolls were just dropped in the creek at the bottom of the ravine to destroy the evidence. <laughs> All right. The perfect crime. The two. Di- yeah. It's like stabbing someone with an icicle. <laughs> yeah. The two did disagree about the fifth and final picture, fairies and their sunbath. This is that one with the weirdly translucent fairies in their little flowery hollow. Mm-hmm. Elsie said this one was a fake, just like all the others. And that she had taken it. But in another early 80s interview, right around the time of this one, Francis insisted that the fifth picture was the genuine article and that she had taken it. She said, it was a wet, sun- it was a wet Saturday afternoon and we was just mooching about with our cameras. Elsie had nothing prepared. I saw these fairies building up the grasses <laughs> and I just aimed the camera and took a photograph. Well, if you were seeing fairies all the time, why didn't you just take pictures of them from the start? Well, they usually had trouble capturing them. You can see they're only half captured in that one. Where did the little gnome guy come from? Uh, the little... Visually. What do you mean? He's also a cardboard doll. I know, but like, where did they get the picture for him? Oh, that's a good... He's probably in the same book, and they mm. probably had to add the wings as well. Mm. Maybe the hat. <laughs> um, if that last photo isn't of fairies, then it, I think it's probably an accidental double exposure... In which case, both of the girls took the photo. Yeah, I mean, both of them could have. Um, so that's that's my favorite possibility there. Finally, in a 1985 episode of Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers, <laughs> to answer your question about why it took until 1985 to admit this, Carrie, mm-hmm. they said they had been too afraid to reveal the prank as children uh, once Arthur Conan Doyle got involved. I could totally get that because like it just is snowballing and there's all these adults that are like super into this and it's kind of weirding you out. But as a kid, you're just trying to behave and and do what adults want you to do. So I can totally see it being like, oh no, this is just snowballing and snowballing and now we can't take it back. Elsie said, two village kids and a brilliant man like Conan Doyle. Well, we could only keep quiet. Yeah. And Francis said, I never even thought of it as being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun, and I can't understand to this day why they were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. I think, yeah, that's probably also true. It's definitely true of Conan Doyle. He was very, he was in. He was certainly in. He was way in. Um, It wasn't until 2017, Carrie, that the latest data point in this uh, tumultuous story... (laughs) hit the news wires when two more photographs i saw you had pulled one of them up before it it showed um elsie lying on the grass with three fairies in front of her Mm -hmm. that's one of two additional photos that were found in 2017 where um in like i don't know well one of them was found in a newspaper and one was found um somewhere else family possessions i think 
So they had been previously printed? In Yeah, in 1917 and 1918, these two photos had been printed. And actually, one of them had been printed in the newspaper The Sphere in 1918. It just didn't go very far, and, oh, wow. and people didn't remember it. Um, they are pretty... I mean, the, you saw that. That was probably the worst-looking one of the six that we've seen. Mm. And uh, both of these photos are kind of crude imitations of the first two. And it has been pointed to as evidence that Arthur and Polly Wright were obviously in on this from the beginning. From the very beginning. Because the story I mean, they I, told... I could see the kids maybe confessing to their parents after things started to go a little crazy. Right. And the story they told was that Arthur had taken the camera after two photos, and these are the only photos we took. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there's two other fairy photos they didn't tell Doyle about, or Gardner, that's weird. Yeah. And uh, maybe that answers the question you had, Carrie, about, well, if a double exposure, if that kind of a trick did take a little bit of darkroom fuckery, mm-hmm. um, Arthur could have stepped in on that end, too. Yeah. Um, it is interesting. The family didn't make any money off of this. But you got one of the most famous people in the world, like, obsessed with you. I mean... It's a good and bit. he could also like sort of destroy your life too if you confess to <laughs> lying. Do you think that's what they th- the little girls thought would happen? Like, I think the parents Doyle would take their house. No, but I think the parents like they didn't want to be lambasted by everyone's favorite writer. Right. You don't want Stephen King calling you an asshole. You know. <laughs> he wouldn't. He's a nice guy. I think so I've seen his Twitter. He's he's called people assholes, but they're the right people. <laughs> they're people on the right. Anyway. (laughs) That's all I've got, Carrie. That's the story of the Cottingley Fairies. Uh, Francis does say that that fifth photo is genuine. You can't have it both ways, Francis. I'm so sorry. And both of the women maintained until their deaths that they uh, had seen fairies, that fairies existed and that they had seen them. What do you think? I think it's easy to maintain that because you don't need proof of your own experience. I think maybe they were seeing with advances in technology, like with James Randi, he's like clearing things up with computers somehow, and you're you're getting into the 80s now. People he's, are doing, he's doing the CSI enhance. <laughs> well, I mean, he is doing the CSI enhance. Um, I think they kind of saw that the writing was on the wall and that they could kind of take ownership of this story before having it blown up, you know, having someone else reveal that it had been a hoax because they were able to enhance it enough to see the hat pins or whatever. Right. Oh, so that's, that's why then? I, I mean, right I think, I think by thing. that point, most of the people important to the story were dead. And, um, and yeah, they could see the writing on the wall that, well, if we don't come out and say it, someone else is going to because pictures are only getting better. Yeah, if we don't see the writing on the wall now, someone's going to see the drawing on the cardboard. Pretty much. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life 
on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Let's take a trip to Ireland and the Bizarre Bazaar. and big Orby. look at the look at the shillelaghs over there, Carrie. Look at the look at the fine Irish sweaters. Can you be racist against your own people? I hope not. Shockingly relevant news this week out of Galway, Ireland, a team of paranormal investigators known as Paranormal Supernatural Investigations Ireland, or PSII, have taken some very intriguing images at a local ferry fort. PSII was called in to investigate by a farmer in the country who reported that he had a fairy fort on his land and that strange activity happens inside. This is like the stuff in in Iceland. Yeah, pretty much. Now, fairy forts, for those not in the fairy know, and let's hope you're a little more so after today's episode. Or the fairy gnome. (laughs) Fairy forts are the circular remains of ancient dwellings, which can range up to several thousand years old. These ruins are associated with myths, folklore, and superstitions integral to the Irish culture. PSII investigated the Farmer's Ferry Fort, which he could say five times fast if he would like. <laughs> farmer's Ferry Fort, Farmer's Ferry Fort, Farmer's Ferry Fort, Farmer's Ferry Fort, Farmer's Ferry Fort. Oh. And captured some strange images during their overnight session, including what they feel is an image of a translucent wolf. Quote, after doing more research, we found that fairies are shapeshifters and can take on the image of a wolf. <laughs> Richard Morrison of PSII told the Irish Mirror. After doing more research into fairies, mm-hmm. into how fairies be. Mm-hmm. Morrison went on to say some locals had also spotted the ghostly wolf and that the images received a strong response when posted on social media. Said Morrison, quote, we were contacted by a farmer who has had the fairy fort on his land for generations, and he believes that strange activity happens inside it. He had reached out to us to investigate the fairy fort as he knew that we focus on folklore, mythology, and the paranormal. He would never remove the fairy fort from his land as he believes it would give him and his family ill fate. In Morrison's opinion, the images captured at the farmer's fairy fort, farmer's fairy fort, are just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip. (laughs) Regarding fairy forts and the paranormal, considering that more than 30,000 of these kinds of ruins are scattered across Ireland. Quote, We believe that these forts hold supernatural power, Morrison explained. (laughs) 
We posted this picture up on our Facebook page six days ago, and it got a very strong response from members of the public. What we believe it to be is a translucent image of a wolf, as do some members of the public. We must remember that fairies are nothing like how Hollywood portrays them to be, like Tinkerbell, etc. Morrison concluded by sharing that PSII is fascinated by Ireland's close connection to fairies and folklore, and they're going to continue to investigate fairy forts and similar areas. Doing the good work. Got to. Farmer's Fairy Fort, Farmer's Fairy Fort, Irish Farmer's Fairy Fort. Oh, uh, that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will be forever grateful. And special thanks to those of you already joining us in the top couple of tiers over there on Patreon. Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, and Delaney. Um, you can join us and uh, chat it up over on Discord. You can suggest episode topics. You can get ad-free listening. And extra pictures of Poe. Extra pictures of Poe. And uh, <laughs> that's the greatest prize of all. Uh, we'll send you stickers sometimes. Uh, what else? Oh, you get to hear your name right here. So come and join we're us. sending out holiday cards this year. So get into it. Look forward to that, patrons. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> Farmer's Fairy Fort. Farmer's Fairy Fort. Farmer's Fairy Fort. Farmer's Fairy Fort. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now wherever you get your podcasts.